from the poem known as Jerusalem by William Blake. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green and was the holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills? And mills are what we're going to talk about today. The milling industry comes to Ypsilanti. Hi there. My name is Shoshana, and I'm a librarian at the Ypsilanti District Library. Welcome to the library's podcast, Ipsy Stories. Ipsy Stories is a podcast about the history of Ypsilanti told in story form by historians, academics, community members, and local experts. This podcast seeks to unearth stories and perspectives that may be new to you and are often unheard. Our hope is that by listening to these episodes, you'll gain better understanding of our collective past, present, and future. The views expressed by each guest are their own and do not represent the views of the library. Unless a town was founded for reasons other than the pursuit of agriculture, as was the case with lumbering or mining towns, the first industry established in most towns of the upper Midwest were mills. Ypsilanti was no different, and the first mill recorded was established by Benjamin Woodruff on the Huron River in 1824. No one then could foresee how this industry would blossom in the age of steam and bring Ypsilanti along with it. Today, we'll be learning from circulation clerk Jerome Drummond about the history of the milling industry in Ypsilanti and how it would change Ypsilanti's economy. Jerome Drummond is a clerk at the Ypsilanti District Library, working at the Michigan Avenue location, and is a member of the Ypsilanti Historical Society and the Genealogical Society of Washtenaw County. He majored in history in college, earning his bachelor's degree from the University of Michigan, Flint, has taught introductory genealogy classes at the library, and is writing a biography of Charles Rich Pattison. Hi, Shoshana. As always, thanks for having me back. In the three episodes I've contributed to Ipsy Stories so far, we've explored land acquisition, the newspaper business, and some aspects of transportation. Today I want to talk about the milling industry. This subject fits in with the earlier three because all of them were part of a model of civilization moving from the East Coast to the West. All of the settlers moving across the continent knew exactly what to do, how to found businesses, government, and agriculture. The only question would be who got what. Mills as in flour mills? I didn't know we had those here. I know that Chelsea has the Jiffy Mix. 
When me and my sibling were little kids, my mom took us to Jiffy Mix, probably during a school vacation, and we got a tour of the factory. It was so cool seeing how it all worked in a modern mill, especially since my mom would often make Jiffy Mix corn muffins when I was little. Yep, Jiffy Mills makes the cornbread I grew up with. Mabel White Holmes, the daughter-in-law of the founder, is credited with creating Jiffy's ready-mix baking products. Ypsilanti had mills, too, of several kinds, and they were the foundation of our first industries, as they were in many towns. Simple industry like that was eventually consolidated around the country in large cities like Chicago. Ypsilanti's mills passed away. Jiffy endured because it filled a niche no one else did. The central business of Michigan as it was developing was agriculture, the raising of food for personal consumption and for market, which the Midwest is still known for today. The many products that agriculture produced, from flax to tallow, supported carpenters, cabinet makers, fullers, tanners, coopers, millers, draymen, weavers, spinners, dressmakers and tailors, chandlers and milliners, many kinds of vocations, and manufacturing. For our purposes today, we shall define milling as a transformative process by which natural resources are made into materials used in the manufacture of a useful product. So sawmills make lumber, paper mills make paper, and so on and so forth. The vocation of milling itself is very old, going back to the ancient world, and it was a common pursuit. In 2010, Miller was the seventh most common surname in the United States, with one and a quarter million people so named. I know some people named Miller. <laughs> Don't we all? As with Ypsilanti, it's common to wreck towns on rivers, which furnish transportation, as we saw, water, of course, and especially power. As Rome has the Tiber, London the Thames, and Paris the Seine, so has Ypsilanti the Huron River. Sister cities? <laughs> yeah, that's right, the elite. Well, the power of the Huron River was first harnessed with water wheels, an ancient technology rapidly expanding across the landscape in the 19th century. A simple water wheel which the first water wheels of Ypsilanti were, was a large wooden wheel made of paddles, placed just down into the flow of water enough to be turned by the current and produced torque enough to power tools, in the case of a sawmill, a blade. The initial water wheels in Ypsilanti would have been undershot water wheels, the simplest and most ancient kind, whose power depended on the unmodified speed of the water it was suspended in. They were the easiest to build, but they required the mill to be at the river's edge, and so would be washed away from time to time when the river flooded. You could protect the mill and gain power by changing the flow of the water, concentrating it by the building of a canal called a mill race in conjunction with a dam. This allowed you to remove the mill structure away from the river to avoid floods, and such a change in flow could be used to power another design of water wheel called an overshot. Such a wheel was much more efficient in its use of water flow. The water flow could be regulated, kept constant, or be stopped altogether. What is a mill race? Well, as I say, a race is a sort of canal 
which diverts river water to where the miller wants it. The head race is the canal leading to the water wheel, and the tail race is the canal returning the water to the river after it has turned the water wheel. For an undershot wheel, the head and tail races could be at the same level. For an overshot wheel, the head race is higher than the tail race, the difference between the height of the dam and the level of the water below it, so that water pours on top of the wheel rather than flowing under it like an undershot. To achieve a difference in height between the two races, a dam generally needs to be constructed across the river. The mill owner may own the dam, or if not, leases what is referred to as a water power. The five principal milling operations that were established in our town in this period were sawmills, flour mills, plaster mills, woolen mills, and paper mills, all on the Huron River, and more or less in that order of establishment. All of these mills contributed essential resources to the growth of Ypsilanti and the country as a whole. Lumber for building, plaster for building and refining gypsum fertilizer, wool for clothing and bedding, flour for baking, and paper for civilized pursuits. The sawmill was always first. How come? I wouldn't have guessed that. The early settlers usually only had time to build a primitive log cabin before the onset of cold weather. A cabin is not bad in terms of making a warm shelter. If you mudded securely between the logs, you would be left with a fairly thick wall between you and the elements, and the insulating value would improve with each succeeding year, because wood has a cellular structure of sturdy cellulose in cubes, the center of each cube filled with water, and each succeeding year would see less water in the wood as opposed to air, and air transmits heat more poorly than water. Wood had drawbacks, too. One in particular may resonate with our listeners. As wood dries out, it often splits and creates a shelter, as in this passage by an early settler named A.M. Beardsley. Quote, Among the sufferings and bittersweets of pioneer life were the mosquitoes, fleas, and bedbug pests. Millions without number were annoying and sucking the life's blood out of us every night. These flat infernals, the bedbugs, would get into the cracks and crevices of the pioneer log castles, and nothing but hellfire and brimstone would remove them. We dared not resort to that extreme remedy for fear of burning the castle. End quote. For most people, the plan was to have a house as they were on the East Coast, and that meant milled wood, wood cut into boards and beams. A plaster wall left no place for the bedbugs to hide in. That type of house was built as soon as it could be afforded. Wood was easily obtained. The area around Ypsilanti was not quite as wooded as you might think, though. Sporadic meadows known as oak openings were common here where the woodlands and the grasslands commingled. But any good-sized farm had plenty, and that had to be cleared out for farmland. You may recall in episode one, that Lucius Lyon advocated for cutting down all of the trees and developing the land agriculturally. He oversold that idea to convince the state government to build roads where he wanted them. The land above the Saginaw Bay, though, was not nearly as good as the southern one-third of the lower peninsula, and the growing season is shorter, which is why it's in forest today. 
Isn't it still forced because of the establishment of the national forests, like the Huron National Forest, the Manistee National Forest, the Hiawatha National Forest, and so on? Well, yes, that's true. But they could be set aside as forests because they had been so little settled up through the beginning of the 20th century. Those forests were cut, though, so much so that the 1870s saw really big fires up there, much like the ones in California in this year of 2021. It's common for people of our own time to look back at that time and shake our heads and say, what a shame that natural resources like forests weren't protected. What was wrong with those people? It seems pretty out of step with the way people think about things today. Yes, for people today, not for them, though. They were following the dictates of their society. From their perspective, Michigan was a wasteland. I can't imagine anyone calling Michigan a wasteland today. Michigan is so much forest land and land that's good for agriculture. What was the mindset that led people to see it that way? They couldn't imagine much else, except perhaps a few people like Henry Thoreau. They or their ancestors came from lands that were well populated, with limited agricultural technology and little room for expansion. We have forgotten today, but famine was a commonplace then, and it was thought that there was a moral imperative to growing as much food as one could for the good of the community and your own enrichment. The word wasteland derives from the Latin word wastus, which often means land undeveloped and uninhabited, and that is not how we think of the word today. We think of land that is infertile on its own merits, and that is why it is that no one lives there. Our word wasteland is a description of the state of the land, whereas wasteland for them was a moral failing, a lack of industry. The land was there to be used for the good of all, and you didn't use it. It was wasted. As I've said before, we shall encounter this word industry again and again. This explains the unexplainable. In my last episode, I talked about the use of wood as a road pavement in plank and corduroy roads. A modern person would look at that idea and say, what a waste, knowing the wood will be rotted in just a few years. But a person of that time would say that this was a good use for the wood. Wood was just the byproduct of the industry of clearing the land. The faster the clearing, the better. As the community became more established and the more land cleared, grains could be effectively grown en masse. Oat, wheat, maize, rye, millet, buckwheat, and barley, which supplied the community with most of its carbohydrates in baked goods. We say that bread is the staff of life, and these are all grasses. Humans eat grass seeds. We think about how cows eat grass, but we do too. Grain that was separated from the stalk was made into flour, or whiskey generally. The enhanced ease of transportation and storage of whiskey made it a popular product. We'll talk about that when we cover temperance. In the first year or two, settlers in our area did their own primitive grain milling. They would have a piece of log, perhaps a foot or so long, and hollowed out at one end. They would stand this log up, fill the hollowed end with grain, 
and tamp it down with a heavy baton, as a kind of mortar and pestle. Writers of the time remarked of the sound of a number of these being used at once in Woodruff's Grove. Tap, tap, tap. Speaking of Benjamin Woodruff, the founder of Woodruff's Grove, he established a sawmill in Woodruff's Grove in 1824, and like many sawmill owners, he eventually converted it to a flour mill. This mill would likely have been powered by an undershot water wheel, which drove two round millstones between which the grain was ground into flour. In America, in the time we're talking about, Oliver Evans was generally acknowledged to be the best mill designer, and his millwright book went through many editions, maybe 50, and was used all over the country and the world. Even George Washington used an Oliver Evans mill, and there is one to be seen today at what, what we used to call Greenfield Village. To give you some idea of the growth of this industry, I have an article from the Detroit Free Press of May 21, 1842. Quote, The Contrast Benjamin J. Woodruff of Ypsilanti, Washtenaw County, Michigan, in 1823, dined the entire population of that county, 28 in number, at his table on the 4th day of July. The population of that county is now 24,000, and the present wheat crop upon the ground, it's been estimated by old residents and compectual judges, will yield the next harvest 380,000 bushels, which will make, allowing five bushels of wheat to the barrel, 76,000 barrels of flour. Deducting one barrel for every person enumerated in the census for house consumption, Within the year, 24,000, it leaves 52,000 barrels of flour for the market, which, should it bring as much as it does at present, and undoubtedly will, would amount to $260,000. It is also estimated that the sales from other surplus grains, pork, beef, etc., will amount to at least as much more, making the grand total of over a half million of dollars which will probably be realized from sales of the surplus produce of Washtenaw County this year. This is considered to be a safe estimate. The writer of this article is glorying in the bounty of the land and the industry of its inhabitants. I have no way to verify the production figures mentioned in the above article. Assuming they are accurate and not simply boasting or boosterism, Those are impressive numbers after only two decades of development and would indicate that farming produced a good return as an industry. So sawmills and flour mills were very popular. Towns of any size on a river would have these. Later the railroad came and took the air out of these industries, but in the early days, farmers wanted to have a mill handy to them to save time, effort, and money in getting what they needed. What were the other kinds of mills? Mills for plaster, wool, and paper. I know that Benjamin Follett, one of Ypsilanti's most prolific entrepreneurs, had a plaster mill here at least by 1864, because his ads appear in the Ypsilanti commercial newspaper then. Plaster is used for the construction of building interiors, and gypsum, which is the primary ingredient of plaster, was used as a fertilizer by farmers also. I don't know where the gypsum came from for the mills here, I know it was mined near Grand Rapids and Alpena and this time period. Woolen mills could make 
yarns and woven wool cloth, which is very popular in cold climates like Michigan. Wool manufacture was popularly pursued on both sides of the Atlantic, and there was actually considerable competition between Great Britain and the United States. As for paper milling, Mr. Cornelius Cornwell was a very successful miller who had several mills on the Huron River and produced the newsprint paper that Ypsilanti's newspapers were printed on. Mr. Cornwell also produced fine stationary papers, and he even owned a paper store in Chicago to sell it. An article in the Ypsilanti Commercial, dated March 13, 1869, gives a description of the process of making paper from cotton rags at the Peninsular Paper Mill, owned by Cornelius Cornwell. I include it principally because we wish to show the sort of complex mechanization that is occurring after the Civil War, as follows. Quote, the rags, including mostly cotton remnants in many a household, are gradually accumulated, sold to the rag peddler, and by this important personage, transferred to rag warehouses. Accompanied by the polite superintendent of the hands, Mr. S. Bernard, we proceed to the third floor, and here we find 20 women sorting rags. Adjoining this room on the same floor is the rag cutter, or machine shears. The rags being cut are thrown into a rotary duster, the dust sinking to the bottom, and the rags thus relieved, as light as feathers, are blown out upon the floor, then shoveled through an opening to a rotary boiler or bleacher. Water forced by steam and impregnated with 800 pounds lime and other chemicals are emptied with the rags into the bleacher and being slowly revolved and submitted to a pressure of 60 pounds steam to the square inch, come out in a few hours all white, ready for the washing machines. They are hurled and swept around in a constant eddy for about five hours in the pure river water pumped up for this purpose. They now take another journey to the second floor and take up their abode for a few hours in six bleaching tubs. The chloride of lime pretty well purges them of remaining impurities. End quote. To shorten the story, I'll say at this point that the bleached rags are ground to pieces and then submitted to multiple drying presses, which render it into finished paper. All of these processes in the paper mill are powered by steam engine, which along with turbines had replaced the water wheel in most mills by this date. To continue with our paper process, paper is cut to size by machine. Then, quote, it is received by two good-looking young ladies and by them delivered over to the folder and counter. An expert man will count up a ton of paper a day, about 40,000 sheets. Being folded and tied up in bundles, strongly wrapped and corded, two reams each, 960 sheets, the printer's thousand, is sold to the printers and publishers, made into newspapers and books, and scattered broadcast over the land. End quote. A few notes on the reading. Rag peddlers, seen in every city in this time and well into the 20th century, would travel the alleyways with a cart and a horse, buying bundles of used clothing and other articles, or salvaging such things if no one cared. The modern equivalent are the scrappers, who drive around my neighborhood on trash day in a pickup truck, finding metals to sell or objects that could be repaired. My mother in Detroit in the 1920s loved to pet rag peddler's horse when he was in the alley, 
and it was very gentle. In the description of the papermaking process, bleaching is mentioned as well as water rinses of river water. The used water was then dumped back into the Huron River, where it accumulates with what was dumped in Ann Arbor and what will be dumped in Rawsonville, Belleville, and all down the line of towns to end its journey in Lake Erie. The natural world and its health were little understood or valued in this time. Listeners will be interested to know that a dam, the last incarnation of this peninsular paper company, is still visible on the Huron River north of town near the Peninsular Place Apartments. It is currently being debated by the citizenry whether the dam should be removed or not. Many such dams exist on almost any river in our area as water power was instrumental in the building of industrialism. The trend in recent years is to remove such dams and return rivers to their natural flow. So you see that from the milling process was produced the fundamentals of life, food, shelter, clothing, and paper. Paper for books and newspapers, as in libraries. Yes, the fundamentals. So you're saying that the beginning of the milling industry was really the start of the industrialized America that became the manufacturer to the world. Yes, it's in the aftermath of the Civil War that manufacturing as we think of it really took off, and urban populations grew at dizzying speed. The machinery grew in sophistication as well as productivity. Here's another article from the Ypsilanti commercial, this one from 1886, discussing another Cornwell paper mill. Quote, One is almost awed as he enters the engine room. Their former engine was 100 horsepower. The new Corliss, 350. The flywheel is 22 feet in diameter and has a 38-inch face. The cylinder is 32 by 54. The belt weighs 1,000 pounds. The double-action pump sends the enormous amount of 7,500 barrels of hot water to the four large boilers every hour, and there's surplus enough to heat the river, making it pleasant for bathers. The entire weight of the engine, including condenser, is 45 tons. End quote. Gone are the days of the simple water wheel. Here we have machinery worthy of the Henry Ford Museum. Charles Chapman, in his History of Washtenaw County, tells us that there was considerable business activity in the milling business in our town. Benjamin Woodruff, founder of Woodruff's Grove, had a sawmill which I mentioned he had established in 1824 and was doing a fine enough business then to encourage imitators. Some worthies, named Hardy and Reading, built a sawmill and a dam on the Huron around about 1827, although Chapman relates that the dam was of crude construction, mostly logs and mud. They were joined by John Stewart with a competing sawmill. Hardy and Reading sold their interest in this mill to Mark Norris and Timothy McIntyre. Then McIntyre sold his interest to Anthony Case and Chester Perry. And then Arden Ballard purchased the whole works from Norris, Case, and Perry, and erected the Eagle Flowering Mill in 1840. Mr. Ballard sold his interest to a Dr. Clark of Detroit in 1843. In 1848, Clark sold his interest to Thomas O. Hill, who sold out in 1850 to Mark Norris and Benjamin Follett. 
Norris sold his share to his son Lyman D. Norris in 1853, and Follett sold his to Chauncey Joslin. Lyman Norris sold his share to Chauncey Joslin in 1856, and it was Joslin who owned it when it burnt down later that year. What do we make of these many purchases? I said in episode one that 19th century business methods reminded me of the game Monopoly, the way properties were traded back and forth. In that time, it was Lucius Lyon, Titus Bronson, and Augustus Woodward. But a generation or so later, it's Mark Norris, Benjamin Follett, and Arden Ballard. We may infer Chapman's opinion from an interesting passage that preceded his description of this mill business by a few pages. All of his treatment of Ypsilanti up to that point was a description of events, almost an inventory. But then on page 1,123, he gives us a rare sample of his own opinion. Quote, Men must not be ever in a serious mood. In his proper element, he cannot be. For good health depends in a great measure on an occasional laugh and moments of gaiety snatched from time. The ancient people so believed. The early settlers of this city practiced the salutary merriments of life, and often their peals of hearty laughter rang through the surrounding forests, floated an echo down the river, and died away in the distance. The thoughtful Indian, having heard, wondered at its boisterousness and reality. Such a laugh and such a time cannot be mimicked now. They have almost faded from memory. This is the age of money, when such pleasures are forgotten in the chase after gold. Few remain of the true old men who brought joy with them in their travels and reveled in simple gaiety in their homes. End quote. Throughout the history of the city of Ypsilanti in the 19th century, you will see the constant jousting of the moneyed men, constantly reorganizing themselves in new teams and combinations in the chase after gold. The farmer has his constant battle with the elements and markets, but the possibilities were narrower and the motivation geared a little more towards subsistence. The Lord provides with his opening of the sky's rain and showering of sunbeams, or punishes by insect and drought. The city man, however, must forever live by his wits and by his aggressiveness. If he stays off to the side and does his work and gives his employer good return for the dollar, he can keep his little job. But if he wishes for more, he'll have to get in the game with men of superior resources and combinations, a daunting way to live. Thank you, Jerome, for teaching us about the history of the milling industry today. I never knew mills played such an outsized role in developing and changing the economy in towns like Ypsilanti. Thanks, Shoshana. We started off our episode today with William Blake's take on the, quote, dark satanic mills. Here's another little ditty by Sarah Cleghorn with a similar view. A poem called The Golf Links. The golf links lie so near the mill that almost every day the laboring children can look out and see the men at play. Mills were not fun to work in, perhaps, but they were the gateway to our modern world. A special thank you to Sam Killian for all his work on the Ipsy Stories webpage. 
You couldn't do it without you, Sam. The sounds of the water wheel and wooden bevel gear come from the Sounds of Change website and were recorded by Torsten Nilsson. Sounds of Change is a cooperation between six museums in Europe. The audio files on the website are available for use under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. A special thank you to local musician Annie Palmer for providing music for this podcast. You can check out more of her music at anniepalmermusic.bandcamp.com. Thank you so much for listening to Ipsy Stories. If you liked what you heard today, please consider subscribing and telling your friends and neighbors about this podcast. You can subscribe to Ipsy Stories wherever you find your podcasts. You can also explore previous episodes with additional resources at ipsylibrary.org slash ipsystories. If you have ideas or story suggestions, you can get in touch with me at shoshana at ipsylibrary.org. That's S-H-O-S-H-A-N-N-A at Y-P-S-I-L-I-B-R-A-R-Y dot O-R-G. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Hey, thanks for listening all the way to the end of the episode. In our next episode, we'll be learning about the history of the Kiwanis Club of Ypsilanti from Kiwanians Jerry Jennings and Bill Nichols. If you don't want to miss it or other future episodes, you can always subscribe to Ipsy Stories on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And be sure to tell all your friends and neighbors about us too. Bye now.